Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. Whether you've been listening to the podcast since its inception, which means that you've listened to 96 episodes, I think, of this podcast, which is crazy, or if you just started recently, I wanted to make sure that I brought back someone who was a guest on the podcast a few months ago to talk about new topics. And that is my friend Gil Rosenthal. Uh, you may have heard Galit Saporta mention him in her interview, which is talking about their book, Practical Fraud Prevention. Gil and Galit worked together at PayPal back in Israel, one of the smartest teams in the world. And just with the people that I know that came out of that geography for PayPal is just incredible. After PayPal, Gil went on to run, well, I think he worked his way up a little bit, but then he went on to run the risk fraud credit department. I'm sorry, I should have his LinkedIn in front of me, but he oversaw risk and credit. Uh, and I think fraud is looped in there as well for Bluevine. And they are a business to business lending company, as well as just fintech in general with various financial services. Gil oversaw the Paycheck Protection Program for his company, which we talked about on previous episodes. I personally think that he deserves a medal for that. Everyone that survived the PBP program on all sides deserve medals of some sort or superhero capes. After his time there, actually, his partner needed to move for their career and Gil chose to become an advisor and a consultant to fintech startups. He's been very successful. He's worked with some great companies that are in consumer lending, that are in buy now, pay later, issuing banks digital banks are so all of those different financial institutions and fintechs very smart on productizing end-to-end -end solutions to really reduce fraud while increasing revenue and that's something that I have a goal for I really work with merchants and e-commerce companies and marketplaces with similar goals and I think because we both really enjoy fraud strategy we'll probably never duplicate the same fraud strategy all the way through from end to end ever with any of our clients because every company has different nuances different systems different issues culture different risk tolerances etc it's just such a fun puzzle to put together and so it's really enjoyable for me to get to talk to somebody else who thinks like that in that higher level and also on topics that are just universal to all of us that are fraud fighters, one of those being that term that makes us all groan, the fact that a lot of business leaders still believe that fraud prevention, preventing losses due to fraud is going to impact growth, right? Or we'll hear losses due to fraud are just a cost of doing business. I'm going to groan for you. Uh, unfortunately, it's not a cost of doing business when you to continue to grow. You don't do much to mitigate it because they'll just tell their, the bad actors will tell their friends and that problem will continue to grow. They'll tell their friends and or everyone they know on Telegram or Discord or the dark web or wherever it's at. So they don't necessarily have to be friends. So today, Gil and I talked quite a bit about 
about how we need to convey to business leadership why what we do is important and why it's important that we do it well. We've both provided several different examples and anecdotes on how we convey to business leadership that growth and security aren't mutually exclusive. They can live together. They can both be priorities of the business and actually should be balancing each other out. He has a really great anecdote comparing online business to either a shopping mall or an amusement park, which to be honest, when I saw him just list that out as an idea, I was like, you're going to need to explain this part to me. What does this have to do with online commerce and fraud prevention? But I have a feeling that a lot of you are going to be using this analogy from now on. I know I'm going to. I'll always credit Gil, but this was something that I learned that I am sure I will say more than a few times when I speak at presentations or work with clients. And then also talked a little bit about why Fraud is so much worse in the U.S. than in the EU and the U.K. and how regulation can be a good thing, how it can help really it needs to be quality and thoughtful regulation. We're not just talking about any regulation, but companies can't make big changes alone because of competition. So if one company puts in, for instance, if one company puts in 3D Secure 2.0 in the U.S., then there might be a little more friction for their customers than others. Not as much 2.0 as 1.0, but still, this was one example used. So anyway, we I really think you guys will enjoy this conversation. I always enjoy having these conversations as well as listening to them, too. I think that it just helps us apply these things to our own lives, our own companies, and also to know that you're not alone in thinking about these things. Sometimes it's just nice to hear other people talking about things that are also hard. And these are not, you're definitely not alone in having these conversations. Fortunately or unfortunately, as consultants, Gil and I have probably had more of these types of conversations with business leaders than most of you have had to. So why not learn from our experience, both our mistakes and our successes. So with that, we'll get a quick word from our sponsor and then we'll hear from my conversation with Gil Rosenthal. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So, 
If you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. Welcome back to Fraudology. Thank you very much for it. So happy to be on again. So it's been a little while since you were here last. It was the beginning of January. What have you been up to lately? So I continued doing consulting work and working with early stage fintechs to help them put together fraud prevention systems, hire people, put policies in place, things like that. It's been a lot of fun, very illuminating, getting to see more and more different angles, which is to me, at least very interesting. I love the like thousand mile high view of things while also being able to dive deep in some cases. Yeah. And I I think I mentioned this to you offline, but I want to say thank you because last time I was on, I got so many people reaching out and talking to me and actually managing like a a couple of customers who came in through the, through hearing an episode and saying, Oh, let, we'd love to talk to you a bit more. So thank you. I really appreciate all your support and being here. That makes me so thrilled. That's my favorite thing when people who have been guests and, and taken their time and, and shared their time and their expertise with me and the Fraudology audience to make new connections, to get new opportunities, whether that's through advising and consulting or new job opportunities. It's happened more than I thought. And I'm so great. I'm so glad for that. Like I, but I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, it's your brilliance that shines through. I I really appreciate the way you think about things. And I do think that your experience and knowledge in setting up comprehensive fraud and KYC processes, as well as some of your credit knowledge as well, is really unique and very needed, especially with so many fintechs starting up these days and not always thinking about that first. <laughs> I really appreciate you saying that. For those of your listeners who are not aware of this, Carice is one of the great connectors in this industry of putting people together and helping kind of matchmaking, which is amazing. So the work you do is, is very inspiring and I try to pass it forward. I don't think as successfully yet, but working on it. Well, I appreciate that. It honestly gives me so much joy to connect intelligent, smart people to each other. And so I'm grateful I could do that for you a few times, as well as having you on the podcast. And actually, you were also mentioned on my podcast fairly recently when uh, I interviewed Galit Saporta, our mutual friend, along with Shoshana Marini, about their book. I know that you helped contribute to that as well. And I've heard from so many people who are really appreciating having this resource out in the world. Oh, yeah. It's an amazing book. I highly recommend it. They are both amazing people and experts. It's funny. I I was just thinking about it the other day, how when I started, Gilek was like the expert to me. Yeah. When you started at PayPal, right? When I started at PayPal. And she was the expert. Everyone went to Gilek to ask questions. Mm-hmm. She, she was almost like an Oracle and, and she was doing it for three years. Right. And by now we've all been doing it for so much longer, but somehow I still consider Elite as like, she is light years ahead of me and will always be 
And she like one of the most brilliant people in the world. So, but she's yeah. so humble. She would never, ever consider that. I mean, it was cracking me up that she she said a couple of times on the interview that she's still learning advertising fraud. I'm like, you've been there two years. You probably know more about it than anyone. <laughs> she's yeah. so smart and picks up stuff so quickly, but very humble. <laughs> totally. And that's, I think, one of the amazing things about our industry is that we get to know so many other people who share our same passions, but have different skill sets and different perspectives that we can learn from. And hopefully they can learn from us as well. That said, you and I have, I've been wanting you to come back for a while. And I'm just so grateful that uh, you had some time, especially because I wasn't good at scheduling. So I had a need as well, but I was planning on doing it anyway. You have such a unique perspective on things that I really enjoy chatting with you, both recording and not recording. And some of the things that you and I have talked about, and then it's also just kind of a consistent rant that we often have is those of us who are kind of jaded and have been fraud fighters for a while, that it seems at a business leadership level, I mean, outside of fraud, but just the senior leadership or just the business as a whole, as well as in society to a certain extent, especially in the US, it often seems like there's this conception that fraud is inevitable and it's just a cost of doing business. And I'm sure most people listening just did the groan of familiarity because we've all been there. Whether it's payment fraud, application fraud, account fraud, et cetera, it seems like not enough people outside of our industry of fraud prevention understand that it's controllable and doesn't always mean the opposite of sales. Want to hear? I know you have thoughts on this. So what are they? (laughs) So I think there are a couple of things that you mentioned in there that I want to kind of cling to. Yeah. The first one is the term cost of doing business, which I think there are two, two sides to it. One is fraud fighting leaders. We should remember that some of this is cost of doing business. You never want to have a fraud target of zero, right? Because if, if you have a, never have any fraud in our system, it's going to be very hard to have clients in our system. Good so point. there is an element of that always needs to kind of state. But the question is, what is an acceptable level of fraud? And the acceptable level of fraud, a lot of times, at least from the business perspective, is much higher than what it has to be. It's being treated as until it is bleeding me dry or causing someone to really freak out either on our, in our finance team or in our compliance team. Just don't get in front of the top line. Don't get in front of money coming in the door, customers coming in the door. And the fact that the bottom line erodes, gets eroded by fraud, that we need to have a lot more operational people in place because we're bringing in fraud. All of those things kind of go by the wayside and get ignored. And I think, again, is from a leadership perspective, if we're participating in those leadership conversations, we need to do is we need to help the others in our company see the true cost of fraud. See that not just the financial side, but how many extra headcounts do we have in our company just because we're letting in more fraud than we have to? What are the data costs that we we need to add? What are the shipping costs of merchandise that goes to bad actors instead of to our legitimate customers? What is the impact of fraud on our brand? If we're not considered a secured site to shop in or to transact in, or what does that mean? And how many customers would leave us? And what's the, what are the trade-offs? So all of those are not just educational pieces. They are tangible, concrete numbers that you can put in front of your leadership team to help them understand better what is the true cost of fraud? And that it's a lot more than just cost of doing business. I think another thing you mentioned that I really want to kind of rant about for a second is that you said, especially in the US. So I'm originally from Israel. 
I did not grow up in the U.S., so I have a bit of that dual perspective. I've been here for seven to eight years now, so, so it's been a while. But from that dual perspective, I can really say that the U.S. market treats a lot more leniently for fraud and accepts fraud as the cost of doing business to a significantly higher degree than other markets. And that translates in the lack of willingness to put any type of friction into customer experience, the much more relaxed regulations, and general economics that business take in the U.S. market compared to other markets. And I, I think the easiest example for this is 3D Secure, right? Been active and working well for credit card transactions in Europe for a while. Not perfect, gets improved, but has been in place, ubiquitous. No one questions it. No one says, why do we need this? Or maybe some people say, when, especially when it doesn't work, why do we need this thing? But in the industry, regulators, everyone understands it. Everyone accepts it. No one would consider it in the US market. And it, it just, I think the accepted levels of fraud are just so high here that sometimes I, I'm just floored by it. Yeah, I, I completely understand. I, I think it's an interesting perspective coming from another country to be like, why in the world? I mean, similarly, I can't remember if I told this story previously on the podcast or not. We're getting dangerously close to 100 episodes. So I can't remember everything I've said, but I worked with a company that was based out of Europe that didn't have a US website until the beginning of 2019. And even though they're a pretty big brand, they were resold in the US, but not ever having a direct to consumer website in the US. And they felt, oh, we'll just duplicate everything we did for fraud in the EU, in APAC, in the UK, and all of our other regions where we have a website for the US. However, they knew enough to know that consumers don't, well, th there was a lot of pushback around 3D Secure, right? And it was like, well, because it's not regulated, let's not do it because we don't want to have that friction, et cetera. And so duplicating everything from the EU, but taking away 3D Secure, it clearly they hired me less than a year later <laughs> for a reason. And, and they were very confused by that. And they were like, we didn't, they did not understand why there was so much more fraud in the US than in Europe. And there's a lot of reasons for it. It's a multi-layered issue and problem, et cetera. A lot of it is around regulations, but it's also around consumer expectations. I think there's this chicken and egg thing where merchants don't want to do it because they're worried that their customers won't like the friction. And so they'll go away, they'll drop off, they'll go to the competitor. Customers don't really understand it because not enough merchants are using it. So when they do see it, they're like, what is this extra step? I'm just going to jump off. And then you've got the issuers who will implement it on their side because the card brands tell them they have to and because there's a liability shift if they don't, et cetera. But I think that a huge reason why there's more fraud in the U.S. is because banks are competitive, whereas in other markets, oftentimes, and this is changing a bit because of challenger and online banks, but oftentimes a consumer in another country outside of the U.S. might have three credit cards, but they're all from the same bank. Here, the banks are always competing to be top of wallet. So they want to approve as many transactions as possible without putting any friction in place. And frankly, if it's a card not present transaction, how much do they care about 
putting that friction in place and declining a transaction when if that card was stolen, it's not their money. And I'm not saying they don't care at all. I'm just saying that there's such a competition for top of wallet from everything from all the rewards and competition that they try to throw at you. They want to be put on file with the companies online. And so it's just become this free for all without a lot. And every company is using different systems and processes, et cetera. And it's all behind the scenes, but there's only so much you can do behind the scenes without working together with the issuers and the banks using something like 3D Secure. Let's say if we're thinking about what's kind of unique about the U.S. market from this perspective, very, very high competition, right? It's not just in the banks, it's it's everywhere else, right? Mm. The, and this mm. reluctance mm-hmm. of putting friction in is true anywhere else, right? It, it's true about asking you to verify your email address, which is a very simple, straightforward strategy for fraud prevention that we've been using for since before I joined the industry. Mm-hmm. But half of the places won't use it, right? Because it's one step, it might cause some drop off. And I can fully understand why they're doing it, but that high competition is definitely dropping the level of friction people are willing to take. And then on the other side is, and I'm not sure if all of your listeners would agree with me, but quite relaxed regulation. So the regulator in the US isn't as aggressive as it is in the EU. A big part of why 3D secure is ubiquitous is because the regulator stepped in. And I think if the regulator in the US was effective and highly educated, there's definitely things that can be done differently. And we can maybe talk about that more there. I don't want to dive into that. That's a topic all of its own, but the US market is definitely unique. Let's say that. I will say something just back on 3D Secure because I think this will be of interest to people listening. I hosted my retailer call earlier today and a very large retailer. They're probably in like the top. I know that they're even higher than this, but I'm just going to say the top 50 of all e-commerce retailers actually shared that they are using 3D Secure in the U.S. market. And they will suppress any challenges and they have definitely been warned that could impact authorizations, but they don't totally see that problem yet. But that they enjoy the liability shift as well as the break and interchange, that it's a worthwhile step to them that they've been able to convince the business that will save so much money that even if there is a little bit of drop off, but again, they're not challenging it. So it's almost seamless. It's behind the scenes. 2.0 is much less clunkier than 1.0. There is a bit of latency. We're still talking milliseconds, but there's a lot of data that's transferred from the transaction at the checkout to the issuing bank, everything from email to device, et cetera. Whereas a standard transaction is just expiration date and the street number and the zip code. It's not in like the basic things. And so that's something that I found interesting and, and, and could be a shift. But to your point about regulators, and yes, we will dive into this even more later, but I do think that there's a challenge because a lot of people, again, it's this thought that fraud prevention, security, taking care of your customers, as well as protecting your business is going to kill business, right? It's going to be the opposite of business. And I think time of after time, especially in digital transactions and, and well, digital first companies, they're showing that actually building trust with your customers equals a lot more money. Showing your customers that you're trying to protect them and watch out for them actually translates in bigger, more loyal customers and more money. But there's just such this old school thinking. Uh, and we're kind of left to police ourselves and decide what's best. And I do think that when you're up, it's not perfect at all, but it is trying to, they're taking it into their hands to say, hey, There's a lot of people being victimized. There's a lot of money being lost here. We don't want that in our country. Let's do what we can to get it out. So 
I think those are very interesting perspectives and I definitely appreciate them. I'm curious because I definitely have experienced this. Now that you're an advisor and consultant working with a handful of fintech startups, is this something that you bump up against more than you did as a full-time employee for a single fintech? Well, well, it definitely is. I mean, not that when I was working in, in previous roles, uh, right. it didn't come up, but yeah, now, now it's usually I come in as an ex- external advisor. That's usually one of the first conversations is here are the levels of defenses we've built. And if I say, well, that's not enough, I, convincing the person who brought me to consult is quite easy usually because they brought me in because right. they want, want my advice. <laughs> Convincing everyone else around the table, usually a lot harder, but I started creating specific content specific just for that. So for example, fraud education sessions where we have that conversation or what is your risk tolerance or risk appetite? So those have been very helpful. The other side of that is I've started to really see what is the impact of that level of pushback because Mm. larger companies from the benefit of getting to be larger companies, some of the clear fallacies and misconceptions, they, they obviously managed to work out of their system. When I'm working with very early stage companies, in a lot of cases, I come across those fallacies that I, I just didn't know were out there. And that has been very interesting and very illuminating to know that, that some companies don't think that you need to collect as much information and or just the ability to let anyone who wants to transact or any other type of concept, which is Some of them come from very kind of noble ideals, but a lot of times I find myself in a position of being like the skeptic who tries to explain to them what things would look like when the rubber hits the road Mm -hmm. and reality is not necessarily going to be as kind as they expect. Yeah, I have definitely had a lot of those conversations as well. And I think actually in a way by fumbling a little bit, I've uh, along my career, I mean, gosh, I was really bad about it when I first started. I was just like, well, I know this, like, why, this is common sense. Why don't you listen to me? But now using data informed, you know, decisions and, hey, have you thought about this? Or are you worried about this risk? This is something I've seen other companies similar to yours experience. You you may not have this problem now, but when you offer X, Y, Z, you will, et cetera. One thing I thought of when you were talking about that was just the very first company I advised and ended up working full-time for them, which is a whole other thing. And this is over a decade ago, they told me that, It was impossible for them to have fraud because, well, there were several reasons. And this person who told me this actually hurt their last day was my first day at that company. So and that wasn't me, my decision. That was the leadership. But they were telling me who their customers were, that all of them made over six figures, didn't have children, had all this discretionary income and it was for luxury goods. They're all these amazing people. And I realized they were just talking about who they were marketing to. I was like, well, who like, how do you know this about your customers? Well, those are the people that they're marketing to. That's the persona that they had in their head. That wasn't actually the realistic customers they were getting. A lot of times, as we know, especially in fintech with new business models, et cetera, a lot of the fraudsters are early adopters. And so we do kind of have to come in as this like cynic or skeptic and be like, guys, I know that's who you're marketing to. I know that's what you want. Yeah, I would love to just I wish we lived in a world with unicorns and rainbows and only people with good intentions would use your product. But we have to think about how they're going to exploit it. 
Yeah, I, I would say any product where there's high value and opportunity for fraud needs to be prepared for it. Mm-hmm. If Even if you think, let's take just Ivy League University alumni donors who donate more than five figures, at least five figures annually, right? This is potentially highest echelon individuals that you'll find from a financial perspective. Even there, the potential of fraud exists, right? Someone could come in, could do something. As long as there's a way to take money out of your system to exploit it, to turn it into fraud, and as long as you're building something that is attractive, and almost everyone is trying to build something that is attractive, the exception would be things like paying parking tickets. And that w- where <laughs> I think the level of fraud is usually fairly low, but even there- Or maybe card testing. Yeah. If they don't have the right security, right? I mean, exactly. to your point, I think the best thing I've heard said and I've repeated many times is if a company can make money off of selling goods or services, so can a fraudster. Uh, And so that's pretty much everybody, right? That's everyone online. That's fintech. That's marketplace. That's e-com. You might be like, who would steal a bunch of highlighters? Well, I've seen it or like hundreds and hundreds of Bibles, right? Like why would anyone steal? Well, I've seen that too. And then in fintech too, I think a lot of people have this assumption of Oh, we've thought out this use case, the good use case so thoroughly. That is the only way our system's going to be used. That's the only way that's those are the only people that are going to use it because they are like most of the business leaders are spending so much of their time thinking about the good use cases as they should be. However, to your point, it can be detrimental to businesses if they don't pay attention. Uh, And I think that's kind of what you were saying at the beginning of this topic or this question was you've seen the impact of the pushbacks against fraud on the success of the business. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, I think it's really a matter of understanding that there isn't just one user type that is coming to your website. Mm. Mm-hmm. There are multitudes and therefore there shouldn't just be one path. So our, our product team always called this the happy path, right? This is the perfect user and therefore they need to go through the perfect path that gives them no friction, that is extremely smooth, extremely fast. Everything just clicks right, which is great. And you want to make the majority of your users go through that happy path, but you still have to classify them and you still have to have some of those unhappy paths that they have to go through if they're not that perfect user, if they are a bit more suspicious, if they're a bit more risky, or, and if you just ignore that, then that means like all of the bad actors are just chugging along through that happy path with no friction. Mm. And entering your system and eating away at your company's profitability, at your trust and victimizing your clients, right? Because your customers are a part of their target for victimization. A hundred percent. I think that's so well said. And in an ideal world, everyone would just need the happy path. But there is a purpose for having those additional paths. If one check fails or if one thing is risky, then maybe you put in multi-factor authentication or one-time passwords. Or there's a lot of other things as well, depending on really the risk stack and the user journey and, and all of that. But in a lot of cases, businesses often think they need to make a choice between growth versus security. And that's something almost everyone listening has gone through at some point. It's almost as if it's like a zero sum game where you have to pick one or the other. You can have growth or you can have security. I personally don't believe that, but that seems to be like this overall thought process. And so that's especially with, I know what I was going to say before, like is 
far as a lot of fintechs, especially have razor thin margins. And so razor thin margins, but the risk, they're on the hook for the whole thing. So that's even more critical to put something in place, right? But then at the same time, You've got these rapid growth fintechs and e-com and marketplace where they've got VC investors that are pushing them to grow fast. And so there's just this really thought between growth or security. You can't have one without the other. Well, that's I don't believe that. I don't think you do either. What do you tell business leaders when that assumption is made or when it seems like that assumption is being made? I try and break it down is First of all, talk to them about different approaches to risk controls and risk management. And, and that's true for fraud. It's true for, for compliance and, and a few other risks, which is I use the analogy of a, a shopping mall and an amusement park. In the shopping mall, you walk in the door, no friction at all to walk in the door. You can get into the building, no problem. When do you start getting friction? Whenever you want to transact, whenever you want to do something, you need to face a clerk, you need to swipe your credit card. You start having that friction in place in some form. An amusement park and I think actually in my, in my mind, it's like the, the old style amusement parks, right? You go to the line at the front, you pay for your ticket, you get that wristband, and then you go in and on any ride you want to take, people just see that you have the wristband and they let you through. No friction anymore, right? You just keep passing through the, whatever you want to do. So it's the difference between creating some friction up front, but then once you're in, you're almost always in that happy path. There's some places you need some friction, but the vast majority of times you're running through that happy path versus a situation where everyone is allowed to get in the door, but then you're constantly running into different friction. If you do neither, then it's like having a shopping mall where no one pays. You're probably going to lose quite a lot of money <laughs> yeah. doing that. I really love that analogy. When you first said that you give people or companies you work with a choice between being a shopping mall or an amusement park, and what kind of fintechs are you working with? <laughs> but actually, I mean, thinking about the amusement park piece, just going even a step further, and, and it's been several years, maybe like four or five since I've been in an amusement park. But the last time I was there, there were biometrics. They were asking people to put their thumbprint in and their face scan. But then once you did that, or and or you also got like a wristband on your wrist that or other things like that, different parks have different things like that to pay for everything. So that even like brings it one step further, right? They're doing biometrics to make sure that they can track you throughout the park. So they know what you're up to, but it gives you as a shopper or as a consumer who's enjoying the amusement park, this feeling as if you're free to do anything, right? It's all behind the scenes. And then you have this pass that you link to your credit card and you can just scan your wrist or these days it's just like a chat, you know, an RFID where I know for a fact with the amusement parks that I've worked with and talked with, there's a lot higher spend on those, right? Because there is no friction. You're not even having to pull out your card and interact with a clerk. You're just moving right through. And so that really is an upgraded happy path compared to going to a shopping mall, having to wait in line, maybe not buying as many things because you're like, oh, I like this thing, but I don't want to go stand in that line. So I'm just going to go, you know, put it down and go to the next door. Whereas just scan your wristband and keep on going. That is such a great expansion on this analogy because part of what I talk about in this analogy is the difference between top line numbers. How many people did we let in the door Mm. versus bottom line numbers, which is how much profit did we end up making? And if all you care about is how many people did we let in the door, you might be able to raise your next fund. But even that at some point stops being the case. Mm -hmm. And at some point that kind of the carousel stops and you have to get off the ride. But if you're creating very good customer experience, once you're in through the door, then you're improving your bottom line. 
Mm-hmm. You're reducing the amount of people on your team who need to work on constantly fielding the fraud escalations and the customer service escalations you get from fraudsters and that you get from people that you've mistakenly <laughs> identified as fraudsters because your fraud levels are so high, you confuse too many people with fraudsters and from other companies who say, hey, wait, I need my money back and you have less chargebacks, you need a smaller team for that. All of those start really piling up. And like you said, if anyone you let in the door is transacting more, is trusting your, you mm-hmm. more, is loving your company, you're still going to end up making money and quite a lot of a hundred percent. I think that it's just such an old school way of thinking that it has to be, they can't be, that they're mutually exclusive, right? You can either have growth or you can have safety. I think it absolutely is true for both. And that's, especially these days with so much technology innovations, the buzzword of identity has been around the last several years, but I never really felt like it applied to marketplaces or e-commerce other than the marketplaces where there's in-person interactions in real life. But the best, I mean, to me, one of the best examples, and I hope they're fine with me mentioning their name because it's a very good example for me. And I don't think it's just because I'm a fraud professional. I was relieved when I was signing up for an Airbnb account the first time. And I was asked for to take a picture of my credit card. I was asked for a selfie and that it had to match my driver's license. Now it was clunky because this was several years ago. It's a lot more seamless now, but That was something I was relieved about because I want to make sure that the people whose houses I'm going to stay in are doing the same thing and that they've been checked out and verified. And I know actually they do even more. And if I was somebody who was opening up my home, I would want to make sure that they were checking that too. It's a safety thing. And that makes, that's why people choose to transact with companies like Airbnb because they take their customers trust seriously rather than a random listing on Craigslist, for example. It's a big difference. Completely. And just to think about the possibility of either being an Airbnb guest and Airbnb is, is, is a great example here because the level of trust they need to inspire yeah. in both sides of the transaction is huge. Thinking of being an Airbnb guest and walking into an apartment and just there isn't a door, right? It says a number and there's just no, <laughs> no apartment to go get into or or the flip side of you are now hosting someone. And in some cases in Airbnb, you host in rooms, not in apartments, right? right. Like, yeah, someone is there while you're there as well. You need to know that these are people you can trust and you need to know that someone behind the scenes really cared about that. Well, and that they know who they are, right? So if there's a worst case scenario, they know exactly who it was. They have all the information to file that away. And they have a big team and they really work well. I'm really a fan of them. I'm having one of their top experts in investigations and others joining the podcast soon. And that should be good. But I think that just to your point and just wrapping up this point, Using identity at the very beginning of the flow to me is similar to taking your ticket at the amusement park. Now, not all identity services are going to tell you like, oh, you can trust that person, but it's at least going to tell you that is who that is. This is all the information they're using their right device. And there's a lot of that can be done behind the scenes. There's some really impressive technology out there that I've, I mean, there's one particular company that I actually said, I want to work with you guys, which usually I don't do that. I'm grateful that people come to me, but I was just like, wow, I, you're doing a lot of things. You're making this a lot more seamless. And I'm seeing a need for identity to be in e-commerce now, not necessarily uploading your driver's license just to buy a pair of jeans, but understanding so much more about the device and the person, et cetera, 
so that you can give them a seamless experience afterwards. If you're letting everyone through the door at the very beginning, if you're letting everyone create an account, there's just a lot more chaos. There's a lot more triage, a lot more reactivity, as you mentioned, and and just a lot more busy work for your staff to do. Yeah. And, and from my experience, we're talking very large multiples. So we're, we're yes. talking with that initial onboarding defense versus without or proper controls versus without. We're talking easily 10x more fraudsters in your system. Now, it might not mean 10x fraud loss in your system because mm-hmm. sometimes your very end of the line defense does a good job. And, and that's if usually the first place you would put your defenses to make sure even if you're bleeding on in other places, that's where you catch it. But the number of fraudsters and the number of activity and friction and false positives, all of that, we're talking easily 10x. Yeah. And there's a cost of all that, right? It costs so much more to do it later on in in the funnel or in the customer path than it is at the very beginning. So even if people like you made such a good point earlier, what's your goal to have as many people as possible come in the door or to keep as much of money at the end of the day as possible. To me, it should be the latter. I understand that there are KPIs around marketing, around customer acquisition, around all those things. But when you're letting fraud in and you paid at a customer acquisition cost, that's adding to it, right? I mean, the LexisNexis True Cost of Fraud Survey, the multiplier is now up to $3.60 for every $1 of fraud in e-com and marketplaces. And I think this is primarily payment fraud, but that's 47 cents more than it was in 2019. That means for every $100,000 worth of fraud that a company has, it's costing their company $47,000 more than it did in 2019, even if those numbers are the same. So it's because of all the costs of business going up. And so that it really is just switching the thinking from this thought process of, oh, security means less growth. No, actually, how about security can actually enable more sales? It can enable more good customer experiences and more trust. And yeah, you may have a bouncer at the front of the door, so to speak, that doesn't let everyone in, but that's to keep the whole ecosystem of your company safe and to be able to know that a much stronger majority of money that's being spent is going to stay in your bottom line. It's not going to go out the back door through various losses. So what approach do you think that businesses should take once they've identified a gap in fraud controls and are deciding on how to fix the issue? How should they be thinking about solutions? So I think there are a lot of different solutions and there's buy versus build and and you can invest in my, from a consultant perspective, a lot of times my immediate advice is you need to get in the door someone who knows how to do this, right? I can consult, I can provide advice. You need someone in-house who actually knows how to do this and build the team and build the systems and do all of these pieces, because usually that's the main thing that is missing is is the person who can impart vision on the rest of the company and can do that leadership education and can help shift the mindset in some places. Then after that, there are a lot of controls and it really is problem oriented. One of the things I do want to mention is is one of the things I break out in rash when someone uses a term is, is customer education. So to be clear, I'm a very, very big believer in customer education and transparency in, in sharing materials. However, I have been seeing way too many companies treating that as a crutch. If we only educated our customers, if, if we managed to just help them understand exactly what is happening, 
then we will not see any fraud. And that is, is a complete fallacy. And from my perspective, when you are thinking, I need to educate my customer, you're telling yourself two things. One, you're telling yourself that your customers aren't as educated as they should be, mm. which in most cases I found isn't true. Your customers are properly educated. There might be things that you can help them with. There might be things that you, you can help them understand a bit better, but they're definitely not dumb. They're definitely not uneducated. And the second thing is usually if you don't have other solutions except for customer education, that means that your problem isn't with your customers. It's with your product and your processes for the life of me. Don't understand why I can walk into a pharmacy and buy $2,000 worth of gift cards, right? That is a policy. That is a process. That is product that they chose to sell. That is not customer education, at least from my perspective. What if they put a little sign next to the kiosk that says, attention, there can be scams involved. Make sure you know who you're buying the gift card for. Yeah, but but we know by now, right? We we know that the fraudsters see that sign too. So they would tell whoever they're trying to scam, this is not that. Don't mm-hmm. worry about that. There, there's these signs, they might ask you a couple of questions and a cashier at a pharmacy isn't equipped to handle a very good like social engineering fraudster who is manipulating a, a victim. That is not their job. That is not what they have been hired to do. You don't post stock shelves and prevent fraud at the same time. I mean, you do that. I don't mean to disrespect some of the great people working in retail and in retail. But there's a lot of turnover security. too. Yeah. I was just talking to a well-known retailer today, actually, who oversees both in-store loss prevention as well as online. Their online channel is only about 10% of their business. And they were saying that they had to lower the age of their employees from 18 to 16 because they're having such high turnover and they can't get people in. So to your point, it's almost impossible to assume that you can educate the cashiers or the customer service people because they may not be there in three months. It's just the way, it's just the nature of where we're at right now. Yeah. So, but let's think of alternatives, right? Yes. If I'm, I still don't understand why there's a need to sell gift cards at a pharmacy. But again, I I come from a country where pharmacies are mostly to buy pharmaceuticals and not to buy uh, other things. (laughs) However, candy and then beer and all the things. Yeah. But beer is actually a great point. If I want to buy beer at the same pharmacy, I need to show an ID. Mm-hmm. Right? I need to sh- not every single time because at this point in my life, it's quite clear I'm over <laughs> the age of 18. But generally speaking, I need to show an ID. They're supposed to ask me for it. If I want to buy a gift card for $500, I don't. Not to mention the fact that the way financial institutions know how to identify the risk level of a mm. transaction is based a lot of times on the MCC code of the checkout of the point. The merchant of sale. category code of the merchant when the transaction is wrong. Absolutely. I- Exactly. If you put the same code for diapers and gift cards, it's very hard to tell what is riskier and what is less risky. However, if, for example, you had a separate checkout that was specifically for high-risk items that potentially had the store manager needing to ring you up, that had in those situations, suddenly you have someone who is much more capable running the transaction and able to run interference if needed or create some friction. You are stopping the ability of someone to just walk in and do something that is very high risk without any consequences. And you're giving the financial institutions an opportunity Mm. or, or the issuers or anyone else who's involved in this transaction opportunity to say, 
oh yeah, this is not something I'm comfortable with. Mm. This consumer actually has a tendency of not doing high-risk transactions at all. I've never seen them do something like this, extremely out of the ordinary, or I've seen them victimized a few times and we are concerned that this might be another victimization situation. Both of those make it a lot more preventable. Mm. Such good points. And that's one of the reasons why I love talking to you, because you think about things in a productization way that is so important, because I think a lot of people would just assume the only choice in this example is to sell gift cards or not sell gift cards. That's the only choice. No, it's not actually. To your point, the one layer that I would add just in trying to propose this to our fictional client that's a drugstore is looking at the data, right? Looking at where are those dollar amounts and showing them, hey, out of all of the gift cards over $500 in total purchases. So it doesn't mean one gift card is worth over 500. It's the total number they're buying at once. 85% of these are fraudulent or are scams. Now it's a little more challenging in a card present environment. Uh, there's not always chargebacks, but there are things you can do to understand that, right? The TC40 port, you can look at different things like that. You can work with your provider and other things to understand that and thinking about it in a way of how can we still enable this without hindering the people who just want to run in. I mean, how many times have I run into a drugstore for a last minute birthday gift for my nieces and nephews? It happens. And that is one of the reasons why the, the convenience and there's a you know significant markup and some incentives to the store that sells them, the company that's brand is on it, et cetera, et cetera. But to your point, If it's high risk and also it gives the bank some more transparency to understand what's being purchased, that's such a good point because, I mean, just using the elderly victim assisted scams, for example, if an issuer sees someone in their, you know, 70s who's making a $2,000 purchase on gift cards and they barely ever use their credit card or whatever it is, that's going to be, that's going to give the bank an opportunity to cancel that transaction, which then saves everybody the loss. So I think it's a great point and you're using it just as an example, but hopefully people listening are can think about ways to productize the problems to your point. And they, I just want to kind of go back to the customer education piece as well, because I, I do think that some customer education is good. I mean, obviously you just did a podcast episode a couple of weeks ago about one key study of a merchant that provided customer education on why it's important to sign up for multi-factor authentication and why it's important to have unique passwords and all of these other pieces. And they saw a 10x revenue difference between the another part of their business that owns fraud and another part of the world that just forced those controls. So that that can happen. But I think what you mean by this, and just to kind of give a little bit more like context in real life context, I mean, without picking on specific brands, there's been significant amount of fraud in the P2P space, right? The peer-to-peer cash, not lending, but like cash transfer space, the apps where I can simply send you 50 bucks really fast. That's just one example. And I think that some of them, one or two more than the others, have taken this stance that their customers just don't know any better and their customers needed to be told, but there's nothing different they have to do. And that I think is you know why you're breaking out into hives when you see that. Is that a better clarification? Oh, that, <laughs> definitely. First of all, yeah, I fully well, agree. This, to be but, fair, but, you and I both, we talked about names before yeah. this. So I know exactly what you're referring to. 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, first of all, you're absolutely right. The gift cards and the pharmacy is that's just an example. There are so many other places where the same thing is happening. Right. And yeah, it's a general are, enough example that people can apply it yeah. to their own rather than an e-commerce or fintech example where it can kind of just get you stuck on that one thing. I think it's yeah. great. And one of the P2P providers in the US market, it definitely overusing the concept of customer education as and definitely you like from my perspective using it as a crutch and i think i'm fairly certain they have much higher fraud levels than their direct competitors and mm-hmm. i think that is again a, a product issue more than more than even a, a pure how good is your fraud prevention team hmm. issue right like the, their fraud prevention team can be awesome yeah. but if the product doesn't support them in making sure that they have all the information that they need, they have the ability to intervene when they need to intervene. There's not a lot that they can do. Now I'm saying that without any firsthand knowledge on any of these departments from the last at least five years. Right. So, right. You haven't worked but, with them as your client, obviously, because yeah. <laughs> probably but, one of you would have quit or it would have <laughs> changed by now. Yeah, exactly. And I've seen customer education being abused by other companies as well. It's just to me, that's one of the things I just usually say, if you say it too much, that really means something else is wrong. Well, yeah. And just to build on that uh, like a minute more, if something is a trend, if something is impacting a lot more than just a couple of people, that is something that can be addressed by changing the product or the process or the policy. I am actually like way more about product process and policy first before adding extra technology. I'm all for adding technology, but there's so much in companies control by changing processes and policy. And you can be so thoughtful about it. There's a lot of things just by understanding. And because I've worked with enough companies and you have too, we understand while someone might say, but wait, if we do that, won't this happen? Well, actually we did this before in this situation and we have surprising results. Like here's one super random example because I was thinking of a very specific one, but this is one from several years ago. There was a very large digital goods company. They were either in travel or event ticketing or or something like that, where customers were paying a significant amount for a ticket of some sort, whether it was for a flight or for a concert or whatever. And their front end, their business pushed very hard not to ever ask for CVV. Just we don't, it's one more thing we don't need. We don't need it at all. The trust and safety team was experiencing a ton of fraud eight, nine years ago at this point. And they fought hard for CBV and they just said, please, can we try it? So they did an A-B test. And so the, a chunk of like half of the customers were asked for the three digits on the back of their card or the four on the front of the card for Amex. And then the other half weren't. And in addition to less chargebacks and less fraud, there was another added bonus that the business didn't expect. And that is that, and this is what happens a lot when you add extra layers, as long as you're doing it thoughtfully, you get these added bonuses that you, you don't realize on its face. They learned that when they sent CVV with the transaction to the issuing bank, their authorization rate went up like by by 3%. And that's significant for a multi, like a billion, multi-billion dollar company. 3% of their sales were approved by the banks more than when they didn't ask for CVV. And here the business, all of a sudden, the trust and safety team is able to say, hey, great news by asking for this. Not only did we not have conversion issues, because the same amount completed the transaction. We also had a drop off in chargebacks on this sector of the market. And we got more sales out of it because the banks felt better about the transaction because we were sending them more information, which is also true for 3D Secure also for what it's worth. I'm not 
always a proponent for 3D Secure in the U.S. There's definitely some scenarios where it doesn't make sense, but it can. And so that's just one example of a lot of times on its face, we think, oh, security can't happen with growth. But it actually, a lot of times there's these added benefits that you just don't think about until you do it. I fully agree. I think one last point on this. Yeah. When we're talking about trying to convince people internally of within the company, why something is a good idea to do, telling the financial impact story, showing the full picture, and that is definitely one great way to do it. Mm -hmm. Another that we haven't really touched on here is just highlighting the victims. Mm. So Mm. one of the best internal sales pitches I've seen was when I was working at PayPal, one of the leaders in a large meeting with a lot of people from other teams basically went in and told them a story of a victim of account takeover and what happened to her and how this account takeover has impacted her life from the lens of just the data that PayPal was exposed to. And this isn't about, he wasn't telling the story of, will this customer come back to us and how much will they shop in the future and things like that. They were just talking about what we can assume happened in her her life, told the story. And then at the end of that, he said, well, account takeover happens quite a bit in our company. Obviously not trying to say anything negative about about PayPal. Account takeover happens with everyone. And also it was in the headlines. And you worked there 10 years ago when it was just starting. So yeah, but even... On that, it's just huge numbers, right? If you have 400 million accounts, things happen. So he was basically able to say, well, I'm looking at the clock. We've been here for 45 minutes. Wow. We probably had 120 cases so far since we started this meeting. And so if you're telling that story and you're saying like, okay, in these 45 minutes, this is how many people like this person just happened or anything like that can help put into perspective. These are real life people that mm-hmm. are getting hurt. And sometimes those numbers are not tiny numbers and we need to help them. That also has very meaningful impact on people because most of the people you work with are very likely good people and they want to do right by your clients and by your customers and being able to see, oh, wait, this is happening on our system. No, we can't allow that to continue happening. Yeah. As long as they know it's not hyperbolic, right? As long as they know it's not a one-off, I think that's a lesson I learned early on in my career is having a balance of anecdotal and analytical. Yes. I wasn't always good at that. And I just tell like the one like extreme hyperbolic story and not attach it to like, okay, this is how much we're losing total to this. This is the significant impact. This is the percentage of people. This is the number of people, you know, like you said, right? In 45 minutes, we've had this many. You have to quantify it too. Otherwise, I think we just get (laughs) dubbed chicken little in our company. Similarly, I was thinking about that earlier on in our conversation. I've used that as well. Working with a merchant, obviously, just like you said, the person who brought me in was all for it. But part of the reason sometimes why people in fraud departments bring people like us in as consultants is to kind of help them get what they've been asking for so long. Just hearing it from another voice that has all these brands attached to them and all this stuff that accolades and, and titles and all the things you and I really don't care about, but that can help get some just some credibility. And just sometimes hearing it from a different voice is helpful. And I'm like picturing their face, picturing where I am, like clear as day. This has happened more than once, but in this conversation, I, I don't see the big deal about having a little bit of fraud here. Well, you don't have a little bit of fraud, but like they didn't care about the dollars as much as they really, as I thought they should. And so I just asked, have you ever had your credit card stolen before? And they're like, oh yeah. And I'm like, where was it used? And they knew right off the top of their head. And I'm like, and how many people did you tell that story to about the fact that your credit card was stolen and, and used at that store? And they were like, oh, <laughs> and how, and did you have to call your bank and were you on hold? And then you had to wait for the provisional credit and then you had to, 
And when it's even harder when people are underbanked, but that's like a whole other story. It's way harder because oftentimes they don't get that provisional credit and that's money they were going to feed their children with. But when you put it in, yeah, to your point, the real world perspective and just taking a step back and looking at that bigger picture, we're not just talking about numbers. We're talking about people and we're talking about future customers or people who will never want to do business with you because they synonymize your brand with unsafe. With my credit card, they let my credit card be used there by someone other than me. I don't want to do business there. It happens all the time. I, I was really inspired by your episode with Ian Mitchell from The Noble a few, a few weeks back. There's a lot of real world implications to fraud. Mm-hmm. And sometimes just being able to contextualize it. And it could be the impact of a scam on the, on the customer. And it could be, this is what we're enabling. Yeah. Helps make a difference. And when you need to help people understand why what we do is important and why it's important that we do it well and that we get the support we need to do it well, that is one of the methods that work. Mm, I absolutely love that. I think that last sentence was brilliant. So, you know, one last thing. And as always, our conversations go longer than expected. But ultimately, what's going to change not only the the consumer and business attitudes towards fraud as a whole, but also create a larger impact on the growth of all types of scams and frauds? I mean, we mentioned regulators a little bit, but I think this is the time where we mention them a little bit more. (laughs) Yeah, I tend to think that the industry as a whole is really taking very meaningful steps in growing up and adding and and improving and getting better. The tools out there are better. The capabilities are improving. However, again, it's very hard to introduce that. And like you said at the top, if there are 10 banks and only one of them would do 3D secure, Mm. everyone will use other cards because that would be the bank with the most friction. If there are three drugstores within walking distance from one another, and in only one of them, you need to go to a special checkout in order to buy a gift card, you're going to a different drugstore potentially, or some customers would go to a different drugstore, then they might start going there for other needs. You start losing business. However, if a regulator comes in and says, you know what, just like we said about alcohol that you need to show an ID, just like we said about cigarettes that you need to go to the main checkout. And if you want to buy a gift card, you need to do that with an ID. Just that, right? A regulator could say that pretty easily. That makes a difference. Everyone has to start doing it. It addresses the, the fact that Like you said, there's a ton of competition in the market and the competitors sometimes compete with each other, not based on what is best to prevent fraud or what is best for my bottom line even, but what is best to make my numbers look like I'm growing and look like I'm I'm heading in the right direction. And that's not always the right approach, but it creates some market forces. It pushes everyone in a specific direction. And that's something that only regulators can really stop. Now, they have to be good regulators. They have to. Right, right. And that is a challenge in Europe, right? The SCA, the strong customer authentication piece, there's a portion of it. I really am sure people in payments might correct me because I... It's been a while since I've you know, had conversations about this, but my understanding is there's a portion of it where every sixth transaction that a consumer has online or in a card not present environment is challenged through 3D Secure 2.0. You as a merchant or a marketplace have no idea if you are the first or the second or the sixth transaction in a row that person has had. And there is friction and there are companies 
And Microsoft's doing a great job at measuring that and they're sharing it uh, on LinkedIn and other places to try to make some noise. But that is an example of regulators maybe not checking in with the business to say what's best. And also, I sometimes do argue that I don't always think that 3D Secure is what should go in place for regulation when countries are saying, hey, what should we do about this? Personally, I think that there's multiple options, right? But it should be one of these categories. I think sometimes they go to the card brands and they say, what should we do? And the card brands say, oh, I have this product. But it doesn't mean that product isn't wrong. I'm just saying I think there's other options. But it needs to be a collaboration between industry experts who understand cause and effect and who understand these pieces, as well as the regulators who have that power. Another challenge the U.S. has is that the Federal Reserve is just an advising party. They don't have any regulation powers at all. So yeah. while they write some really great white papers and they do some great studies and things like that, they don't have the power to do that. They're just advising Congress. And lastly, big businesses who see regulation as a threat can lobby Congress and, and, and their elected officials to do that. And so we don't have a governing body like the EU has that isn't politicized. And that is another huge challenge in the U.S., Fully agree with that. And, and I think it, it's not easy to be a good regulator. You need to be very well informed. You need to be in yeah. constant conversation with all of the relevant parties, put everything into perspective. But that is the job we should be expecting of both elected and public officials who non-elected public officials to aim for, right? Like to try and be and what they should be aspiring to. And there are parts of our lives, right? And I'm not just talking about our work, right? I think about the last time I picked up the phone to a phone number that I didn't know, right? <laughs> and how many times that was someone asking me about my car insurance warranty. That is a scam. That is someone who is trying to scam me. That's not just like a spam call trying to get me to vote one way or another or shop in one place or another. That's an active scam. And that's a non-trivial amount of the unidentified phone calls I get to my phone. And, and I would assume a lot of others in the US market are getting to their phone. Mm -hmm. And someone needs to say, okay, there are these things and we need to find a way to make them be much less of a thing. And it's our responsibility to do that. And that can't be just companies. It has to be regulators. Yeah. And I agree with you. I'm not all for regulation in all areas at all, but I do think yeah. that when individual companies can't, and, and this goes for content moderation, I mean, this can really be extended in tech. I think this has been an unregulated market for a long time. And in some ways, a lot of companies have benefited from that. Watching Super Pumped, I definitely, anyone who saw that, it was all about asking for forgiveness rather than permission, as well as breaking some regulations and rules along the way and then getting too big to fail. When there are systemic things that are broken, that are impacting everyone, costing everyone money, there are ways, whether that's, not every country has the amount of scam calls that all of us are getting, right? There are ways to fix that. There are, the, there are technology to recognize those, all of that. Similarly with the gift card example that you used, or for example, when I go to the airport on Monday, I'm going to have to take off my shoes because at one point there was somebody who may have had a bomb in their shoes. Those are all things that we adapt to and we're okay with. And to your point, when those regulations are across the whole industry, you don't have to worry about the competition anymore 
to keep your customer. You don't have to worry about because every one of your competitors has the same regulations that they need to uphold. They have the same processes and systems in that way so that they're not saying, hey, we're not going to ever you know, run your card through this extra process. We're not ever going to do this or that because they all have to do it. So I do agree with you on this point that I think that will be the ultimate way to get some of this under control. But in the meantime, it's all these hundreds of thousands of conversations with business leaders to help them understand that security and growth are not mutually exclusive. And relying on various companies, a lot of them tech companies, Mm -hmm. to provide tools and capabilities that would allow us to kind of cut some of this out of our lives. And if I use that scam call example, I'm very grateful for basically Apple and Google. Yeah. Each having their own product that allows me to, when someone calls, it just tells me this is very likely a spam call and allows me to avoid it and not answer it. Right. That's a very useful tool and not regulator driven. Yeah. That is just for my benefit. Right. To your point though, if the phone companies, the OS systems or the telcos can identify that it's a spam or a scam call or really just a scam call. I can't remember. Sometimes they say suspected spam. Sometimes other ones say suspected scam, whatever. But if they can identify it at that level, then there should be. And I think there is a way to identify it and just not even have it go anywhere. Right. And if those phone calls can't go anywhere, then the people who are initiating them also go away. Uh, they, they go somewhere else, but it's no longer a path of least resistance and certainly victimizes a lot less consumers, especially with the victim assisted scams, which are just out of control in the U.S. and the U.K. But the only headlines I'm seeing about any government stepping in on these types of issues, especially the victim assisted scams, the elderly scams and others is in the U.K. and Europe. It's not here in the U.S. I mean, people just call it think of it as an annoyance, but Real people are being victimized, real money's being lost. And as a society, I think we're all just getting desensitized to it a little bit. Definitely more recently, some headlines about different regulators trying to be more proactive and take and aiming towards at some point taking a stronger approach and different initiatives that are coming up. So I think some of this might be in the works, but like you said, there's a lot of it that's political. There's a lot, of, it, it's just a very complex process. Complex is definitely the right word. But if I have to talk about this with anyone, I'm so grateful it's you, Gil. I really, I'm not kidding when I say I really just enjoy uh, our conversations, both on air and off air. I appreciate the way you think about things and look at the bigger picture and really help your company, your clients, companies be able to minimize risk while maximizing profits. And that should be our goal. Always love listening and definitely love joining your podcast. I'm so grateful that you listen on a regular basis. That's very humbling. I mean, I feel like you don't need any help for you. You don't need any information from me because of so much, but I'm so glad that you enjoy it and appreciate it. And obviously that, that is not true. And, and it's never true. Right? I think every episode I take new things from it. I love that. Well, and I'm glad. And that's, I, I do too with every conversation I have. So I appreciate it just as much as everyone else. I just get to listen a little bit earlier. (laughs) Well, thank you again so much for your time and just sharing your thoughts on this topic. I am sure a lot of people got information out of it. I'm going to post your LinkedIn in the show notes so people can reach out to you and I will hopefully talk to you again soon.
thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.